I'd like to have you turn with me to the fourth chapter of Matthew, and we want to continue our studies in this gospel. I have a friend who just this past week told me of a friend of his who had come to him looking for a job. He wanted to work in his uh, organization because he he wanted uh, a firm that operated on the basis of Christian principles and uh, where he would be associated with, with other believers and would have a supportive, encouraging environment to work in. But uh, as it turned out, my friend wasn't able to hire this man, and eventually he found work with another firm, uh, and it was uh, an organization that was not at all based on Christian principles. In fact, it turned out to be a very difficult place to, uh, to work. As he described it, the uh, women there had fouler mouths than the men did, and there was a keg in the back room, and they operated on anything but Christian principles. And the question in his mind was, why would God put me in a place like this? Why would I have to work in, in such a dark environment? Why can't I be surrounded by Christians and loved and encouraged in the ways that I, I feel that I need? And perhaps you've asked the same question of yourself. Maybe your circumstances are very similar. If so, then what we learn from chapter 4 of Matthew this morning will speak to you. It will answer that particular question. Now we've come to the turning point in the book of Matthew. Prior to uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Matthew has been concerned with, uh, with preparatory matters. Uh, he describes for us the ways in which the Father prepared the Son for the ministry which he had for him. He tells us of his birth and the events that are related to his birth, and then his baptism. And as the culmination of the preparation of the Son, the event that we, that we looked at last week, the time when the Son was tested and toughened, for the work that the Father had for him. This uh, ordeal in the wilderness when he faced Satan alone and overcame him was preparation for the cross. Throughout all of his life, Jesus would have to face into the temptation to, to turn away from the task that God had given to him. And uh, this first uh, encounter with Satan showed him that he had authority over the evil one. And on the basis of God's word, he could stand and he would be victorious. So this was the test that, that prepared the son and, and toughened him for the task that God had for him. I uh, picked up a poem last week that I'd like to read to you that illustrates this, uh, this principle. When God wants to drill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world will be amazed, Watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his power out. God knows what he's about. And that's what he did for the Lord Jesus. He, he put him through that ordeal to toughen him. And perhaps that's your experience today. You're going through some difficult time of testing, 
will know that that's part of God's preparation for the task that he has for you. So then, having prepared the Son, Jesus turns to the ministry which the Father had determined for him. And what we see in the chapters that follow from verse 12 on to the end of the book is a description of Jesus' ministry. And uh, this, uh, this next section, from chapters 4 through chapters 8, describe his proclamation as Jesus now begins to, to preach. Matthew leaps over the first year of Jesus' ministry. You could put uh, the first four chapters of John between verses 11 and 12. The events that John describes, his contact with the disciples, the four disciples in Jerusalem, the uh, encounter with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, the marriage at Cana, his uh, conversation with Nicodemus, all those events are passed over by Matthew because they're not pertinent to his purpose. He wants to connect the preaching of Jesus with the preaching of John, and so he leaps over all of these events and he begins with Jesus coming into Galilee and uh, the beginning of his ministry of, of proclamation. Let's begin reading with verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. The first uh, paragraph in the uh, section we're looking at this morning is a description of his coming into Galilee. He came to the region described here as the area of Zebulun and Naphtali to begin his ministry. This map, I think, would help us to get oriented. This is a, a map of the northern region of, of Palestine. The area in red is the region of Galilee, Samaria, here to the south of Galilee, and then Jerusalem and Judea, further on to the south, beyond the limits of our map. Nazareth is here. This is where he spent much of his uh, of the early years of his life. As you know, he went back to Nazareth with Mary and Joseph after he returned from Egypt. And we know from the Gospel of Luke that he went into the synagogue at Nazareth after he had been in Jerusalem or in and out of Jerusalem for at least a year, and he began to preach in, in Nazareth, in the synagogue. He was expelled from the synagogue and taken to the hill, and, and uh, they attempted to throw him over the precipice, but he escaped from them and traveled on up to Capernaum, here on the north uh, west shore of the Sea of, of Galilee. And it's there in Capernaum that he began to preach. He went into the synagogue. There's a synagogue there to this day, which is said to be the one in which Jesus preached. And he began to make proclamation of the good news. Now, there are a couple of things I want you to observe from this paragraph. The first is the reason why Matthew mentions his coming into Galilee. Uh, it could have been because Matthew himself was from Capernaum. 
and we always like to identify with important people who are raised in the same town uh, which we come from. My, my wife is fond of telling people that she and Mean Joe Green are both alumni of North Texas State Uni uh, University, and uh, we like to identify with uh, people that we've been with, but that's not Matthew's reason. Matthew tells us that Jesus came to Galilee because it was predicted that he would come to Galilee. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, Isaiah predicts that the place where there was darkness would be the place where the light dawns. Now, Isaiah is referring to uh, the darkness that the Assyrian uh, conquest produced. Isaiah was an 8th century prophet. He, he wrote eight centuries before Jesus came. And he predicted the coming of the Assyrians. A few years later, two of the Assyrian emperors, Sennacherib and Sargon, began to expand to the west, and they conquered all of the area that uh, is designated Galilee, all of Israel, this portion north of, of Samaria. And it was their policy to deport people, conquered people to other parts of the Assyrian Empire. So they took all the leadership, the artisans, the professional people, and they scattered them throughout the world, and they brought in a, a pagan nation in, in that part of the world. And the result was a great darkness. They introduced idolatry, the most gross kind of idolatry. And uh, the people were poverty-stricken and miserable. And demon possession was extensive. They were into all sorts of occult things. And uh, that part of, of the world became one of the, one of the darkest spots on the earth as a result of this exile. But Isaiah predicts that the very place where the darkness was first introduced will be the place where the light appears. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. That's why Jesus went to Galilee because that's where the darkness was. And that's why God leaves us in the darkness, because light is of no value where there's light. I got up this morning and tried to make my way out to the car, and the, the uh, light bulb in our garage is burned out, and I tripped over a rake and fell over a bale of newspapers and had a terrible time trying to find the car until I finally dawned on me that I needed to get some light on the situation, so I went back in the utility room and turned the light on and opened the door and and opened my car door so the light would shine inside, and then I went back and shut the door to the utility room so I could get into the car. And I saw how important it is for light to shine in a dark place. That's what light is for. My father used to tell me of a drunk, about a drunk who was looking for a, something under a street light. He was down on his hands and knees feeling around. And uh, someone came by and said, uh, what are you looking for? And he said, I lost my wallet. And he said, where'd you lose it? It's down the street in an alley. And the man said, well, why are you looking down here? And he says, because the light's better here. <laughs> and uh, sometimes I think that's, that's the way we feel. We want to be where the light is. But you see, the Lord wants us in dark places because that's where the light ought to shine. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem where the religious folk were. He went to the darkest place on the face of the earth because that's where the light was needed, to, these, to this group of poor, downtrodden people. And it's there that, that he began to make proclamation. And that's the second thing I want you to see. We need to understand what he did when he got there. 
He began to preach in verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to, to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. As Steve pointed out some weeks ago, the word repent has no idea of sorrow in it. It literally means to change your mind about something, to reverse your way of thinking. What Jesus was preaching is this, that men needed to change their mind about the kingdom of heaven. The Jews of Jesus' day were looking for an earthly kingdom with an earthly king in Jerusalem. But Jesus came preaching another message. Change your mind about that kingdom. God has another plan. The kingdom of heaven literally has drawn near. It's here. Now, the, the, the term kingdom of heaven is one that, that Matthew uses rather than kingdom of God because the Jews of that day were very reluctant to use the name of God. But it's the same term that's used elsewhere in the New Testament for the kingdom of God. He's simply referring to the sphere of God's rule, the, the climate in which God prevails and rules. And what Jesus wanted the world to know is that God rules now. Our tendency is to look on the, the darkness around us and uh, kind of the yuckiness of life, the stress and the problems and the pressures, and, and forget that that's not all there is to life. Despite uh, Judy Garland's song, there is more to life than this. There's got to be more. And that's Jesus' message. God is here, and he's ruling, and he's available, and he's reaching out to this from this invisible realm. And we need to change our minds and believe God that he's available to us. Some of you may have read C.S. Lewis's novel, Till We Have Faces. I was telling the men in the Wednesday morning study about that uh, particular book. Uh, it's a description, in that book is a description of a woman who loves a prince that no one else can see. He's a fabulously wealthy and powerful ruler and he has a, an enormous castle and he he uh, has a banquet hall at which uh, people can feast, and there are fountains in the castle from which they can drink, but no one can see it. It's invisible. And this young lady loves the prince, and the prince loves her, and she feasts at his, in his banquet hall, and she drinks from the fountain that no one else can drink from. She knows something that no one else knows, you see, because she has hidden resources. She had resources that no one else had. And so do we, you see. And that's what we need to understand. That this isn't all there is. The, the turmoil in our families, the pressure in our, in our jobs. There's far more to life than what we see. The kingdom of heaven is available to us. There's a Lord who's here and who's present. And I've said, as I've said before, one mark of maturity is the realization that God is at hand. He's available to us. Now the second paragraph in verses 18 through 22 is a description of the call of the four Galileans. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father 
and followed him. This was not, as I'm sure you know, the first contact which Jesus had made with these disciples. He had met them in the first year of his ministry, in that quiet year of of discipleship and ministry and service. He had met them in Jerusalem, and they had accompanied him throughout the first year of uh, of his ministry. And then probably when he went to Nazareth, they had returned to their ships because they were in partnership with with their brothers, and apparently the season for fishing had begun, and so they left the Lord and went back to fishing. But now he he contacts them again and calls them into a unique this unique relationship with him. These are Galileans. Again, this group of disciples is not taken from the religious people down in Jerusalem. These are not priests. They're not Levites. They're not rabbis. They were just common folk, untutored, Unskilled, there's some indication that some of them may have been illiterate. And yet these were the people that Jesus called into a relationship with him. They came right out of the darkness, and that's the way God works. We like to bring some prophet in from the outside to minister to our, our darkened uh, sphere of influence, but that's not, the, that's not the way God works. He takes us right where we are, in our neighborhood, in your office, uh, in your family, and he says, follow me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. He, he didn't go for the PhDs in Jerusalem. He just went for the ordinary, common, garden-variety people like you and me. And he said, follow me, and I'll use you. I'll make you an influence on people's lives. I'll use you to bring light in dark places. All you have to do is follow me. I'm more and more convinced that what makes us effective is following Jesus, just obeying him. As the Lord teaches you truth and you begin to act upon it, then God will use you to teach that truth to someone else. That's always the, the principle on which he, he operates. Uh, knowledge in itself is not, is not valuable. Knowledge coupled with obedience to that truth is what qualifies us. That's what gives us authority in the eyes of others. It's been my experience whenever God teaches me something and I obey it, almost immediately afterward, I'm able to use it to help someone else. Someone was telling me last week of a, of a victory they'd had in breaking some habit in their life. The thing in itself wasn't so bad, but it had become habitual. And uh, they, they struggled and struggled for years to break this habit. And finally, the habit was broken. And immediately, doors began to open and spheres, areas where this individual had not been able to penetrate before. And he was able to use this particular uh, conquest to help someone else. And that will be your experience as well. God equips us when we follow him. Joshua and I have been reading The Hobbit again at night. And uh, what impressed me was the choice of Bilbo Baggins as uh, the man of destiny, if you know that book, Bilbo Baggins is a little hobbit, a little furry creature, uh, elf-like creature. He's not really an elf or a dwarf. He's sort of a third thing or a human being. But he's just a pitiful little creature, not equipped really to do anything. He uh, loves to stay home and read books and smoke his pipe, and, and he just doesn't want to venture out into the world. He's not venturesome at all. But Gandalf, the wizard, and his little uh, dwarf friends take him on this great adventure. And he goes with great fear. But all along the line, 
uh, he's equipped for the next task. In one case, they meet some trolls, and the trolls overpower them, but they eventually defeat the trolls and seize their, their weapons, which are swords, special swords made by the elves to combat goblins. And in their next adventure, they go into the mountain and they meet the goblins. But they're equipped because they have goblin swords, you see. And I find that's, that's the way God works in our life. He prepares us step at a time to be useful. See, we, we want to find someone, to, some professional, to do the task. Someone from the outside to come in and do the job for us. But God wants you to be light right where you are. And as you follow him, he'll equip you for the task. Now, the third thing we want to see from this passage is the character of the Galilean ministry, and that's described for us in verses 23 through 25. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and the people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, the epileptics and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. You see what he did? He simply confronted the darkness with a word. When we think of preachers, we think of someone who's professionally trained to be a preacher. But the word preacher simply means to make proclamation used of the heralds of the rulers of that period who proclaimed the, the news from the king and, and that's what Jesus was doing. He was simply making proclamation using the word and as he went about in the midst of the darkness proclaiming the truth, people were healed. He healed every disease and sickness and they began to bring to him people who were ill with various diseases, those suffering pain the demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus' physical healings are symbolic of the greater healing which he produces in lives. The healings were a sign. They authenticated Jesus and the apostles. And we have no reason to expect in this day that that healing is necessarily God's will, or that there are people who are specifically designated as healers. God does heal. There's no question about it. But uh, the healings of Jesus are in a different category. They're signs. They're signs. They were signs of his authority. They designated him as the Messiah. The prophets predicted that when Messiah would come, he would bring healing. And Jesus himself said, that the greatest healing is not the healing of the body, but the healing of the mind. You remember the incident? In fact, it's here in Matthew chapter 9 where the, the four friends brought the paralytic to Jesus. And Jesus said to the man, Your sins are forgiven, which caused a mighty uproar. Jesus turned to the crowd and he said, Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, pick up your bed and walk. But so you may know that the Son of Man has authority over sin. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and walk. In other words, the act of picking up his mat and walking out with it was simply a sign of the greater healing that had taken place in the man. He'd been delivered from his guilt. And that's what the Word does. You see, it brings healing when we proclaim it. It heals from bitterness and a critical spirit and anxiety. 
and the ugly feelings and the habits that we have. You see, that's what the world needs. They need to hear that God is at hand. He's available to them. His resources are being poured out to them. They simply need to receive them. Proclaim it boldly, graciously, always graciously, but boldly. And as Jesus did that, the result was that God brought people to him. The Father put him in a very obscure place. Capernaum was just a very small town in a region that had largely been forgotten, had been written off by the, by the people in Jerusalem. You know their statement to Jesus. No good thing comes out of Galilee. No prophet has ever risen in Galilee. It was a dead, barren, spiritual wasteland. But that's where the Father sent the Son, and he lost him in obscurity there, in that dark place. But the Lord just began where he was, to minister to the needs of people there. And the Father began to bring people from all over that region. Matthew tells us that people came from Syria. That's this area up here. They came from across the Jordan, which is Perea, this area here. They came from Galilee, from this entire region. The Lord didn't have to go out and and look for people. The Father brought them to him. And that's what Jesus wants to do for you and for me, right right where we are. In the obscure place that Jesus has put you, in that darkened office or in that family, or in your neighborhood. And if we're faithful there, if we follow the Lord and we, and we obey Him in that place, and we permit the Spirit of God to produce in us the character of God, and we begin to make proclamation to people around us about the fact that there is a Lord who cares and who understands and He's available to people and He can heal the hurts that, that are tearing our, uh, our nation apart, then God will bring people to you. And he'll magnify and, and, uh, and enlarge your ministry. Some of you, I'm sure, have heard of Cameron Townsend, who's the founder of Wycliffe Translators. And just this, this past week, I heard a, an amazing story. I, I heard the account of how Wycliffe Translators was begun. As you know, this is a group... That whose uh, goal is to reduce all the languages of the, uh, of the world into writing and uh, to get the scripture into every tongue so that all people have access to the word of God. And uh, Cameron Townsend is known around the world today and his organization is perhaps halfway to their goal. But uh, that's not the way they began. Cam Townsend was uh, an obscure missionary largely uh, unknown, forgotten, to a small tribe of, of Indians in Mexico. And he was concerned because as he, as he met other tribesmen, he realized that there were a number of languages in Mexico that had not yet been reduced to writing, and most of these people were illiterate, and it burdened him. And so he went to the uh, officials, Mexican officials in, in Mexico City, and asked for permission to bring in translators and translate these languages and teach people to read and write. But he was refused permission to go into, into these tribes. Some anthropologists got to these officials and said, no, we don't want these gringos coming to Mexico and, and destroying our culture. And so he, he was not given permission to, uh, to bring these translators into the country. So Cameron Townsend went back to this tribe 
and he continued to minister to them, to translate their language into the scriptures and to, to build the church that had been started in that little tiny village. One day he was walking through the village and he saw a fountain in the middle and uh, there was fresh spring water bubbling out of the fountain, but the water was running down the side of the mountain and was largely lost. And so he had an idea and he gathered some of the people around and they dug some irrigation ditches and and uh, taught the Indians how to plant some different crops and they were able to irrigate this field and and uh, irrigate other fields as a result and uh, their productivity was increased and word got back to Mexico City and the president of Mexico said, who is this North American who's willing to come down here and labor in a village where our, our national agriculturalists won't even go? And so he ordered his limousine brought to the palace and he gets in his limousine and they drive down to this little village and the president of Mexico, Lazaro Cardenas, gets out of his limousine and knocks on the door of Cameron Townsend's house and he says, what can I do to help you? And uh, to make a long story short, Townsend was taken to Mexico City and given permission to bring translators into Mexico and that was the beginning of the ministry which today we know as Wycliffe Translators. So let's be faithful in the small things, in the obscure place, in the darkness where God has planted you. Don't be restless, don't be resentful and bitter because God put you there. That's a call to a very special place. Let your light shine there that men may see your good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Let's stand together, shall we pray? Gracious Father, thank you that we're a part of your plan to bring salvation to the world. Thank you that you didn't bypass us, but you worked through us. It's the commonest sort of people. We want to be fishers of men, Father. We want to be used to bring people to you. Thank you that we can and will as we count on you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.